Uh, so just very grateful to be here and the, uh, have the absolute joy and privilege of uh, uh, preaching here at Santan Bible Church. This church is a sister church to Baltimore Bible Church. Whether you knew that or not, I've been uh, following you for your entire uh, journey as a, as a church from uh, after Clay uh, uh, arrived here a couple months after the, the church began. So I've been following your journey all the way along, praying for you, and just very grateful uh, to be with you. And uh, you need to know that uh, this church is on your pastor's heart. Uh, he, he loves this church. He prays for this church. He, he, he just loves this place. Every time he talks about it, it's just with these flowing adjectives about all that uh, this church means to him. So I'm just so grateful uh, for you, for the joy that you are uh, to his heart. I love him. I love his family. I uh, loved his uh, wife and still do, his wife Margie, who's in heaven uh, now. So we're just very grateful uh, to be here and to be able to open up uh, the word of God uh, with you. So uh, why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, for those of you who were there for the Shepherds Conference, you know that uh, there's a, a commentary that's being produced on the book of, of Daniel, but it's coming out uh, too late for me to benefit from it. So uh, uh, you can uh, double check me when the commentary comes out from MacArthur on Daniel chapter 9. But uh, uh, some would consider the final verses of Daniel 9 to be the most significant prophecy in all of the Old Testament scripture and some of the most difficult prophecy to interpret in all of the Old Testament scripture, and that's saying a lot. Entire books have been written on Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Uh, theologians have turned to this chapter over and over again to wrestle through the end-time theology that's presented there. But it's important to keep in mind that this entire chapter begins with 19 verses of Daniel pouring out his soul before God in adoration, confession, and supplication. This all began with a prayer. It's the longest prayer recorded in the book of Daniel. It's one of the longest prayers that we have anywhere in the Old Testament. It's powerful, it's fervent, it's sincere, it's effectual. And this prayer is going to be so instructive for us because even though we might not physically be in the, the city of Babylon as, as Daniel was, we're still believers who are a long way from home. So we can relate to this prayer. And Daniel teaches us how to pray as exiles, as sojourners, as those looking for a city whose foundations and architect and builder is God. Daniel is one of us, and his prayer is a model for weary pilgrims who are a long way from home. So let's turn our attention to Daniel chapter 9. I'll read the first six verses. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, do come before you uh, today, and um, Father, as we open up your word, we recognize that this is the word from heaven. 
Uh, this is the word of our God. And uh, Father, I pray that as we uh, approach it, Lord, that uh, we would uh, approach it with a sense of sobriety, that we would hear from you. And uh, Father, that we would be instructed uh, today, that we would not walk away just being those who've seen things, who've heard things, but that we would be the doers of these things. Uh, so Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The effectual, fervent prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 accomplished much and was answered not only by the prophecy that we find at the end of the chapter, uh, but was also answered by a personal message from Gabriel who was sent from heaven. If you look down in verse 20 of uh, this chapter, it says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the same time, about the time of the evening offering. So if you had any questions about whether or not Daniel's prayer was effective, uh, this should be enough to erase all doubt. I mean, how many people get a personal word from an angel to say, hey, we're listening, we've heard you, you know, your, your prayers reached us. Daniel was highly esteemed in heaven, according to verse 23. Ezekiel 14 mentions Daniel as one of three men who would be rescued from destruction because of his righteousness. Daniel's regarded as a model servant, a preeminent example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 33, shutting the mouths of lions. Daniel was so committed to praying three times every day that he was willing to be cast into a what? A lion's den. I mean, this, this is a man who'd rather be lunch meat than miss his quiet time. I mean, this, this is the kind of man that, that we have before us. And if you really want to know where the power of Daniel's life came from, you'd eventually have to be led back to that roof chamber where he prayed three times a day. Many of you know the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 19th century English preacher and pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He's been called the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers that England ever produced. And at one time, a group of young ministers came to visit Spurgeon to determine why his ministry was so successful. And after showing them the, the massive sanctuary, uh, Spurgeon offered to show them the boiler room. And uh, many of the, the young men, you know, said, you know, no thanks, but no thanks. Don't really want to see the, the boiler room. I mean, we've, we've been in the sanctuary. I mean, this is, this is it. This is where you preach. And he urged them to come. So they, he led them down into the basement where they saw about 100 people in prayer. And he let them know that if they want to know where the power came from, this is where the power came from, the power of prayer. And the same was true for, for Daniel's life. If we want to know why Daniel was who he was, why he had the kind of impact that he did, you'd have to be led back to that roof chamber where he prayed three times a day. Same was true for Jesus. His disciples eventually uh, came to the conclusion that there's something distinct about the way that this man prays. And in Luke chapter 11, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's significant. They didn't come to Jesus and say, you know, Lord, teach us to preach like you do. I mean, the way you move the crowds is just astounding. No man ever spoke like you speak. They didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us to do the miracles that you do. I mean, that walking on water thing is really impressive. Can you teach me how to do that? But they did come to him and say, Lord, can you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray like you do. There was something significant about the way that he prayed. 
And in the wilderness, the mountains, the gardens where Jesus prayed, that was his boiler room. That's where the power came from. And even the angels came to minister to him in prayer. And in Daniel chapter 9, we're taken to Daniel's boiler room, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that availed much. So if you want to if you want a crash course on effective prayer, uh, you need to sign up for uh, Daniel's Prayer Class 101. You know, in Daniel chapter 9, you need to sign up for this. And in broad terms, this text answers three questions about powerful prayer. What provokes powerful prayer in verses 1 and 2? What's the posture of powerful prayer in verses 3 to 4, uh, 4a? And what is the pattern of powerful prayer in uh, 4 down to 19? And we'll only cover the first two. Uh, the provocation, the posture, we'll cover those two, and you can read the rest of the chapter for the pattern of prayer. So let's take a look at the first point. What provokes powerful prayer? The provocation of powerful prayer. Look back at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. This introduces us to a significant shift that took place in chapter 9. Chapter 9 introduces us to the first year of Darius. We were introduced to Darius back in chapter 5, verse 31, where it says that Darius uh, the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Uh, this was a, a subordinate to Cyrus the Great who ruled over Babylon. Some believe that he might even be Cyrus. I believe he's a, a subordinate to Cyrus who ruled over Babylon during this uh, same time and sent Daniel to the lion's den. Uh, the name uh, Darius or Darius was actually a, a regal name, a kingly name. It was common for kings to take on names that signified their authority after they became kings. Uh, the name Darius meant the hero among rulers. And uh, there were a number of uh, men who took on this name. Hero among rulers or the holder of the scepter. You know, obviously these were very humble men, you know, who took on this name. You know, I'm the hero among the rulers. And this was the case for this Median governor by the name of actually Gubaru, we find him in history, who served underneath Cyrus the Great. And uh, this Gubaru shows up in several ancient texts, and he's the governor of Babylon, the region beyond the river, and his career followed the same path of Daniel chapter 6, and this is who I believe that this was. And I point that out because there are critics who question the, the historicity of, of Daniel, and uh, what we find is that Daniel matches history perfectly. And when this Babylonian kingdom passed on to Darius underneath Cyrus, it marked the end of the Babylonian era. And think about this. Daniel had witnessed the rise and fall of an entire empire. He was there when Babylon rose to power, was taken away in the first deportation, and he was there when Babylon came crashing down from their throne. And another empire came and took their place. Daniel saw the entire rise and fall of an empire. Daniel was there. He saw it all. And it's at this point, after about 66 to 67 years, he was taken in the first deportation, 605 B.C., and was there when uh, uh, the Persians came in in 539. He's seen 66 to 67 years of this kingdom. And what has he been doing for three times a day every day? He's been praying, facing towards Jerusalem, praying for the end of the exile that his people would be brought home and now he sees another empire rise up, and that prayer still has not been answered. At this point, Daniel would have been in his mid-80s, if not pushing 90. He was a teen when he was taken from Jerusalem. Now he's aged. You know, it doesn't look as good as Clay does, but, you know, he's aged. Three times a day, 365 days a year, 67 years, 
Multiply that all out, that's 73,365 prayers that Daniel's been offering up to the Lord. And some of you thought you've been praying for a long time for an answer to prayer. So we ask ourselves the question, what is it that provokes powerful prayer? My first answer is this, a prolonged time under tension. A prolonged time under tension. I've heard it said that, you know, uh, time under tension, if you're lifting weights and you lift it slower rather than faster, it builds your muscles. But you, you lift that too, too long, you know, you go too slow and too heavy, you could pop your muscles, right? <laughs> so here, here Daniel's been under this tension, this weight for a long time. It's like, Lord, when is there going to be relief to this? I've been praying this for 66 to 67 years, and now here comes this other empire, and I still haven't seen an answer to this prayer yet. A prolonged time under tension provokes powerful and earnest prayer before the Lord. And the Psalms are filled with this kind of tension, right? Psalm 6, verse 3 and 4, O my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me because of your loving kindness. It's been a long time, Lord. Psalm 35, 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from the ravages, my only life from the lions. Psalm 74, 10, how long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name? And then he asked the question, forever? How long is this going to go on, Lord, forever? Psalm 90, verse 13, do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Have pity on us, Lord. Psalm 94, verse 3. How long shall the wicked exult? Oh, Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They seem to be triumphing. A prolonged time under tension provokes powerful prayer. And Daniel has been living under this tension for decades. He's given the vision of Jerusalem in the future. And he learned that instead of things getting better, things were going to get worse. And it only prolonged that, that pressure that he felt in his own heart. Back in chapter 8, if you look at verse 26, it says the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true. This is a, a vision that he received previously about the destruction and devastation of Jerusalem. It's going to get worse. And it's true. And keep this vision secret, not saying, you know, don't tell anybody because obviously we have it here. Uh, he's just saying, you know, it's, it's going to be reserved for that future generation. You know, protected until that future generation gets this word. It's been a long time, and it's getting worse, Lord. And Daniel's just been sitting on this revelation. The things are getting worse. I can't prevent what's going on from happening. I love this nation. I love this people. And now it's stretched out for many days, and how does he respond? Look in verse 27. It says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. My heart just is so sick. As I'm sitting underneath this pressure, nothing's getting better. I'm just exhausted, Lord. How many of you might feel like you're in a similar situation? Maybe there's a prodigal son or daughter that you've been waiting on to return home for years, and it's like, Lord, how long? How long, Lord? You know, marriage that's going through the, the same vicious cycles, and it, you know, just as soon as you think that you're out of it, you're right back in it again. It's like, Lord, how long is this going to continue? You know, maybe there's a tension within your family, at your workplace, and you're just wondering, like, how, how long is this going to happen? You know, I'm being criticized for doing the right thing. I'm being slandered, accused. It's like I can never get out of the penalty box. Like, Lord, how long is this going to happen? Or maybe if it's, it's, it might even be a physical affliction that just doesn't let up. And you go to the Lord with this prayer on your heart. Lord, how long? 
It's kind of tension that provokes powerful prayer. Lord, I'm desperate. I'm desperate for an answer. You go to the Lord and with this powerful prayer. And this is Daniel. He's coming before the Lord with this prolonged time under tension. I've seen a new empire come in and my prayer still hasn't been answered. Lord, please answer me. First answer, prolonged time under tension. Second answer to that question, what provokes powerful prayer? Scripture under consideration. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This is, and this is so incredibly instruct, instructive for us. It was, it was in the books. The books, now, Sefer in Hebrew, Biblos in Greek. It's where we get our English word Bible from, from that Greek word, Greek translation of this word. And it's obvious that the books that he's reading, he considers these books the word of the Lord. I mean, that's what he says in verse 2. The word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's, it's sacred scripture. And we don't know how Daniel got his hands on the book of Jeremiah the prophet because Jeremiah was still ministering in Judah when Daniel was taken to Babylon. Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem for another 19 to 20 years after Daniel was already gone. So how did Daniel get this, this book in his hand? Apparently, some of the later exiles who came to Babylon carried with them the scroll, the scroll of Jeremiah. And Daniel gets his hands on it finally, and he's reading through this. And I just want to point this out. This is just an aside. But this is so significant because Daniel did not have to wait for some later Jewish council to get together and say, hey, Jeremiah's words are scripture. He's not waiting for the Roman Catholic Church to get together later on and say, hey, you know what? I think, I think Jeremiah is Scripture. We, we declare Jeremiah to be Scripture. He's not waiting for some council or some, you know, board of directors to get together and say, hey, we, we believe Jeremiah is really speaking the word of the Lord. It was understood to be the word of the Lord when it was written, when, when Jeremiah is proclaiming it, because the Scripture itself is the authority. It's not the church that's over the scripture that determines whether or not this is scripture or not. It's the scripture itself which is the authority. The scripture has the power. It's the, the word of God that creates us, not us that creates the word of God. So tuck that one away. The next time somebody tells you that the Catholic church or some other organization created the Bible, ask them what was the, what was the scripture before those organizations existed? It's still the word of God, right? before the councils, before the popes. This is still the word of God. Scripture stands on its own authority because it's the word of God. And Daniel is in the book of Jeremiah, and he understands this to be the, the very word of, of God. And where is he reading? Flip over to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. Just to give you a little bit of an introduction to, uh, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping what? The weeping prophet. He's the weeping prophet. Why? Because he had the, the sorrowful task of telling the southern kingdom of Judah that they were heading for destruction. But Jeremiah didn't only bring the bad news about destruction. He also brought the news about their return. Look at Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 11. It says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, 
All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations, for many nations and great kings will become slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. Flip over to Jeremiah 29. Just another place that speaks about these 70 years. Jeremiah 29, look at verse 10. Starting at verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill all my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. And, and this is where we find some of the most beloved lines of Scripture, but it's important to read them within their context because they're ripped out of context all the time. But look at verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And that's, those aren't words that are saying that you're going to get that house that you've been dreaming of and, you know, new car and a, a yacht. Like, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking to these people who are in exile, who are longing to be back home. He says, I have plans for you, a future and a hope. Then, verse 12, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. What's he talking about? Specifically, he's talking about the Lord's plans to bring back the kingdom from the north that went into captivity in Assyria, southern kingdom that was exiled in Babylon. There were others that, that fled into Egypt. He says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back, and after these 70 years have expired, you're going to come back home. And as Daniel is checking his calendar, he's realizing that the 70th anniversary in Babylon is, is about here. And what does Daniel do? 70 years are almost up, you know. Let's, you know, blow up the balloons and shoot off some fireworks. Like, it's over. It's coming to a close. Praise God. The prayers are going to be answered. That's not what he does. Look at verse 3. Back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. How does Daniel respond to this great news that he's just read? He's received the scroll that came from Judah. He's understood now that his people are going to be released. My prayers are going to be answered. You know, over 73,000 prayers is a long time to be praying. And finally, Lord, you're going to answer this prayer. How does Daniel respond to this? Verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. You're like, is that... Is that right? Is that the way you're... I mean, he's just learned that the prayer is going to be answered. So what does he do? He continues to pray. And not only does he pray, he prays with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I mean, this is like mourning here. And this is the second big heading, the posture of powerful prayer. What's the posture of powerful prayer? This is it right here. And on the surface, it seems out of place. I mean, Daniel, why aren't you... Aren't you breathing a sigh of relief? You know, this joyful shout, Lord, here it comes. I mean, what's with the sackcloth and ashes, Daniel? I mean, this is the time to kick back and say that the Lord's in control and his plans are going to unfold. But that's a deficient view of the sovereignty of God. If your theology hurts your prayer life, you have a poor understanding of theology, right? Daniel didn't just resign himself to the sovereignty of God as if he had no place in the plan of God. We've said it many times, but uh, not only does God ordain the ends, he also ordains the means. For example, do you, do you believe that God sovereignly elects people to salvation? Do you believe that? I hope you do. It's in the Bible. <laughs> do 
God sovereignly elects people to salvation, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's something that God does. He chose us in him. But does that mean that we don't have a role in seeing people come to faith in Christ? Obviously, we have a role in seeing people come to faith in Christ. How will they hear without a preacher? (laughs) Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I've got to open my mouth and speak it. Yes, God is sovereignly electing people, but I've got a part in that. Do you believe that the the Lord's will will be done, that his kingdom's going to come? Do we believe that, his kingdom's coming? Yeah, we believe that. But how does Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. I thought that was already going to happen. No, but he's asked you to pray for it. We're praying for what God promised to come because that's how God taught us to pray. Even in the book of Revelation, you have Apostle John, 22 chapters of Revelation saying that Jesus is coming back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back quickly. And then what does the Apostle John say at the end of the book? Even so, come Lord Jesus. I just spent 22 chapters telling you I'm coming back. But then that's what he prays. And in the same way, Daniel's prayer was the means that God used to bring about his fulfillment. Back in the the text that we read earlier in Jeremiah 29, I'll just quote it for you. In the same context of God telling Judah that you're coming back, he says this in verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. So God says, I'm going to bring you back, but who's going to pray for it? You are. You're going to pray that you come back and I'm going to listen to you. And Daniel would have rightly understood his prayers to be a part of that sovereign plan of God. It was God's ordained means to bring about his ordained ends. And this leads us to an important observation to make. We are to pray for what God promises. We're to pray for what God promises. You know, sometimes I think that people have this idea that powerful prayer is, you know, wrestling God down until he finally cries, uncle, I give, I give, I'll let you have it. You know, that's how sometimes people think about their prayer. I'm just going to wrestle God down until he does it. You know, and then people point to, you know, Genesis 32. I mean, isn't that what Jacob did? He wrestled God down until finally God says, all right, I give up. I'll let you have it, Jacob. Genesis 32, Jacob was left alone. He wrestled with a man until daybreak. Is Jacob changing God's mind about what God would do? Think about this, chapter 25 of Genesis. God already promised his mother, Rebekah, that the older brother Esau would serve the younger. Chapter 27, Isaac told Jacob that he would be blessed. Chapter 28, 28, 15, Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. God says, I've promised you this. Genesis 31, return to the land of your fathers, to your relatives. I will be with you. And then we get to chapter 32, and here Jacob's wrestling God down. God, I need to come back to the land safely. My brother's after me. He's going to kill me. You've got to bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. But this is what God had already promised that he would do. All he's doing is praying for what God had already promised. That is powerful prayer. When we come to the Lord with the Lord's promises and saying, Lord, I trust you. I'm I'm asking you to do what you've promised me that you would do. Do you get that? Same thing happened in the book of, of Exodus. You know, after the children of Israel corrupted themselves by creating a golden calf and worshiping it in Exodus 32, God says, okay, Moses, just just step aside. (laughs) Let me alone. 
that my anger may burn against them and I destroy them and I'll make out of you a great nation. Then Moses intercedes for Israel. Oh, Lord, please don't do this. Don't do this, Lord. Don't destroy this people that you've rescued. What will the nation say about us? Lord, don't, please, please. You know, is that Moses rustling God down? No. In Exodus 3, God says, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. God had already promised that he would bring these people out. So now when Moses is praying, he's only praying for what God had already promised. And this is at the core of powerful prayer. 1 John 5, 14 says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So what is powerful prayer? Powerful prayer is aligning yourself with the will of God and praying along those lines. That's what powerful prayer is. What has God promised? What has God said? What is his will? And I want to align myself with the will of God and pray in that direction. Verse 4 of Daniel chapter 9, it says, I prayed to the Lord my God, confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Where did Daniel get that from? That's almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you know what Daniel is actually doing? This is an example of Daniel praying scripture. He's praying the word of God back to God, and he's trusting in God that he's going to answer what he's promised. Later on, Nehemiah quotes from Daniel. Nehemiah 1 and verse 5, it's like it's just repetition. I'm just praying the words of God back to God. Scripture, quoting scripture, praying scripture. And my most effective times of prayer has has always been with an open Bible. Most effective times of prayer. I open up God's word and I'm reading God's word and praying those themes back to God. It's the word of God that generates powerful prayer. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, Christians should let the Bible become their prayer book. If I'm reading of the marvelous description of Yahweh's kingdom in Micah, it should goad me to prayer. Should I not pray for that fulfillment? When I happen upon Romans 11, 23 to 24, ought it not incite me to pray that God would graft Israel into his people again? When one reads the assurance of Isaiah 33, verse 6, that he will be a stability of your times, don't wavering and suffering believers come to mind? And don't you delight to ask that that this God will show himself to them in his character? Let Scripture drive your prayer. MacArthur writes this, the word generates prayer because when it speaks of God, we long to commune with him. When it speaks of blessing, we long to praise him. When it speaks of promise, we long to receive it. When it speaks of sin, it leads us to pray for the lost. The word of God causes prayer, and Daniel's prayer, like all true prayer, began with an understanding of the word of God. So Daniel aligned himself with the word of God, the will of God, and then he prayed earnestly for it. He gives attention to prayer. Verse 3 says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God, The literal idea there in Hebrew is, I gave my face to the Lord. I gave my face, my full and undivided attention. You know, sometimes you might be in a classroom if you're a teacher, you're talking to your kids, and they seem distracted. It's like, okay, look, look up here, up here, right here. Give me your attention. That's the idea in Hebrew. Give me your face. You know, don't, don't look down, don't look away. Give me the face. And Daniel says, I gave you my face. I gave you my undivided attention. I sought you by prayer and supplication. Psalm 27, verse 8 says, 
when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, will I seek. I'll seek your face. So Daniel is seeking the Lord in prayer, supplication. He doesn't even get to a supplication until later on, you know, further down in the prayer. But what he does do is he opens up his prayer with this, this weighty confession of sin. And this is the, the second point underneath the posture of prayer. What's the posture of, of prayer? Not only do we pray for what God promises, but we also mourn over what God punishes. We mourn over what God punishes. He's fasting. I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. These are all signs of mourning, signs of grief. And there's a link between fasting and mourning. If you do a word study in the scriptures on fasting, you'll, you'll find that it's associated with periods of mourning, urgency, repentance from sin, life-changing decisions. You know, and what a person was doing externally was a demonstration of what's going on internally in their hearts. The idea that fasting is some means to unlock your spiritual potential and growth and just draw near to the Lord, that's not found in Scripture. It's not backed up by Scripture. And the fact that the, the idea that, that I weaken my body in order to be more spiritual has more to do with pagan practices than it does with Christianity. Fasting was never to be used as some means to, to spiritual, spirituality, you know, but fasting was appropriate during times of mourning, grief, urgency, danger, context of difficult life-changing decisions, or when you experience the bitter conviction of sin. That's when fasting was used in Scripture. And Daniel understood that, that Israel was in a position, in the position that they were in in exile because of their sin. And that's why he's fasting. He's mourning. Lord, I, I know why we're here. It's because of our sin, Lord, that we've been brought here. And he mourns over the sins of his people. But how did, how did Israel, how did Judah respond when the word of the Lord came to them? Did they, did they mourn over their sin? Flip back to, to Jeremiah again. Jeremiah chapter 36. Let's take a look at how, uh, how did they respond to the word of the Lord when the word came to them? Look at Jeremiah 36. Look at verse 1. Jeremiah comes with the word from the Lord. And he addresses it to the king of, of Judah. You know, I think you'd want to hear this. This is God speaking here. You know, you might want to hear what God has to say. Jeremiah 36, verse 1, it says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll, write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah, concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Drop down to verse 21. Verse 21. It says, Then the king sent Jehudi, one of his servants, to get the scroll. And he took it out of the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and Jehudi read it to the king as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with the fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with the scribe's knife. You know, give me that scroll. And he takes out a knife and he starts to shred it to pieces and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Yeah, you know, that, let me tell you what I think about 
the word of your God. You know, it's nothing more than fuel for my fire. I'm not afraid of God. But Daniel responds with grief. Lord, how could they do this? How could the nation turn away from your word? Lord, I, I am so grieved in my soul right now. Having read through Jeremiah the, the response of your people to your word. He grieves over this. And the pain of his soul is experienced in the pain of his stomach. I, I refuse to be comforted with food because of this. He put on sackcloth. He refused for his body to be comforted with soft clothes. You know, sackcloth was this kind of rough, coarse, itchy material, often made out of goat's hair. I refuse for my body to be, my body to be comforted during this time. He refused to be comforted with the, the refreshing springs or a cool bath. He'd sit in the dust and the ashes. I refuse for my body to be comforted. I'm, I'm in grief. You know, he picks up the dust from the burnt earth and he pours it on himself. Refuses to be comforted. And by the way, this wasn't just a little dab on the forehead. He poured ashes and dust on himself, completely filthy because of his grief. And in each of these expressions, the fasting, sackcloth, ashes, it was an outward physical expression of what was going on in the heart. That was what was going on in Daniel's heart. I'm just dust and ashes right now. By the time you get to the New Testament, it became all external and didn't represent the heart. That's why Jesus tells the Pharisees, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Get the dust off. Get the ash off. Because you don't really mean it on the inside. Go wash your face. Don't put on the sackcloth. Don't put on the, the dust and the ash on your, your face. Just wash it off. Because I know that your heart does not reflect what's on your face. Just go wash yourself. Go take a bath. Daniel feels the grief of his nation but there's something that you might not have considered, and it's this, that Daniel has not himself committed any of these sins. Daniel was stolen from Judah when he was still a teen. He, his life wasn't characterized by the sins of Judah. All that we know of Daniel's life from the earliest years is that he was fully committed to the law of God. He was even prepared to suffer the consequences of death for obedience to the law of God. Daniel was not this transgressor that we're reading about later on in the book of Daniel. So why does Daniel, as a righteous man, take on the sins of his nation? This doesn't make sense. But beloved, this is not the only time in Scripture that we find somebody taking on the sins of another, is it? Flip over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we find John the Baptist... He's baptizing the nation in preparation for the Messiah. And his baptism is a baptism of repentance. His baptism is a baptism of repentance. And the closest picture that the Jews had to John's baptism was what was called Gentile proselyte baptism. Where, where Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism, that they, they would basically admit publicly that I'm disassociating myself with my past. I'm repudiating my old way of life. You know, I'm, I'm regarding myself as a new man with a new country, a new identity, a new home, new habits, new friends. The old man is dead. I've become a new man, and I'm confessing my sins. This is different than the Levitical ceremonial washings where basically the, the Israelites would say, I've come into contact with something unclean, and I need to wash myself. 
No, this, this Gentile proselyte baptism was saying that I'm the one who's unclean. I'm defiled. I need to be washed. I am the defilement. And as Israel is coming to be baptized, they're confessing their sins. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6 talks about how they were being baptized in the Jordan River as they confess their sins at the end of that verse. And then who shows up to this baptism? Look down in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And at this point, your mouth should just drop, right? Like, Lord, what are you doing here? <laughs> this, this baptism isn't for you. This is a baptism of what? Repentance. These are people who are confessing their sins, Lord. What are, what are you doing coming down here? This is the wrong spot for you to show up. That's exactly how John responded. Verse 14, but John tried to prevent him. Lord, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Why is John trying to prevent him? Lord, you don't have anything to confess. <laughs> what are you coming down here to repent for? Why are you identifying yourself with these people's sins? Jesus Christ, identified with sinners, took on our shame so that we could be identified with his righteousness and take on his glory. Matthew 3 and verse 15, Jesus says, answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Who's Jesus fulfilling righteousness for? Is it for himself? No, he's not fulfilling righteousness for himself. He's fulfilling righteousness for us. And I'm going to identify myself with your sin so that you can identify yourself with my righteousness. Exactly what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He identified himself with our sin, not only in this baptism that was a baptism of repentance, but also on the cross where he took upon himself the sins that we committed so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes on our sins, even though he committed none of them. And Daniel identifies himself with the sins of the people, even though he did not commit these same sins. And if you're here today and you haven't confessed your sins to the Lord, I want to let you know that there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness of sins that's found in Jesus Christ, that you can be identified with him. If you're willing to confess your sins to the Lord, Lord, I am the transgressor. I'm the one who's defiled. I'm completely filthy, Lord. You know, I'm the one who should have the dust and the ash on top of my face, representing the dust and the ash that's in my heart. I mean, Lord, that is me. And if you're willing to come before the Lord and confess that to the Lord, Jesus Christ is willing to say, hey, I'm, I'm taking on the dust and the ash myself. And I'm being crucified for the sins that, that you committed. For what you deserve, you deserve to be here, but I'm taking your place. And I'm willing to offer forgiveness to all those who turn from their sins and trust in me, trust in this sacrifice for their eternal salvation. You don't have to walk in the shame of sin. You can walk in the freedom of forgiveness if you would turn to the one who became your substitute. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we're just so grateful for uh, this opportunity that we have to uh, come before you in prayer. Lord, confessing our sins, Lord, that, that we recognize that we are the ones who are filthy. We are the ones who are defiled. We're the ones who need the dust and the ash on top of ourselves, not just in a physical way, but, but internally, Lord, we recognize that, that our sins deserve that. 
And uh, Father, we're grateful that Jesus himself identified himself with our sins, that he became our sacrifice, that, that he was crucified for us, that he hung, that he bled, that he died so that he could become the sacrifice for all those who would trust in him, turn from their sins and trust in him for eternal salvation. We thank you that, that even though he knew no sin, that he became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.